the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this Eclipse Monday. Clark Hilton is engineering, James Blinn producing from afar, and we're glad to have you with us. We're going to talk with Rahim Kassam, who's the author of No Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You, later this hour, and we'll talk about some of the day's news as well. I wanted to open up today with Psalm 19. This is the New International Version. In light of the, uh, or in the absence of light uh, of this uh, eclipse uh, this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servants are warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. I love Psalm 19 in view of this astronomical display that we enjoyed all across the country because it begins by drawing our attention to the heavens, and then it it reminds us that ultimately it's not the heavens themselves that ought to capture our attention, but the creator of the heavens and the earth. And this scripture certainly does that. Well, I had the opportunity today uh, to view the eclipse from the rooftop of our buildings here. Clark was there as well as Chris from our sister station, The Fish, and our engineer, Garrett, to all of us on the, uh, on the rooftop. And I have to tell you, it was a fascinating display, just as, uh, as expected. Clark, what was your impression of this eclipse? It your really was. S- your second since uh, 1979. Yeah, but the first one I was outside for. Yeah, yeah it was pretty neat. And you neat. were a kid. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, loved it. Um being up on the roof, we could see basically at a 360-degree mm-hmm. view of everything around. We could see the NASA jet that was doing its wide circles around. Uh, it was interesting to look on one side of the building. It was kind of light. The other side was duskish. Mm-hmm. Would, would that be a good term? Yeah, yeah. And very eerie. And then there were those odd shimmering wave shadows that were going across the roof that we could see as it got to totality. And the temperature dropped. Which yeah, that was interesting. Neat. We were standing on a roof that was painted all white, so it, it was a surface that allowed you to see more than I think you might have on the ground. But that was a fascinating 
part of what we witnessed from that vantage point as well. I've heard there were, there were a lot of people saw just odd shadows mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it's like uh, sun setting in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I saw some uh, pictures later of the eclipse as it crossed the country. And you could see from, I think it was a space station or a satellite, you could see the darkness, a swath of darkness across uh, first yeah. in Oregon and then across the country moving east. Really a fascinating uh, display. It was. It yeah. was. And I got to say, it was the best commute into work ever. No one was on the freeway. <laughs> yeah, that was my experience, too. Yeah. Everybody stayed home, at least until after they could uh, witness the uh, phenomenon from uh, a favorable vantage point. Anyway, it was fun to see that with you. And again, thank you for making sure I had the glasses for that. Yes, I'm glad you wore them. Yeah, <laughs> I can see. My mother happened to be here sometimes when I need to take her to a late morning appointment. She comes in to work with me. And uh, then we leave from here and I can get some work done in the morning. Well, she was here. And as we left the building to go to the car, uh, she stayed inside for all of this and watched it on television. But I uh, stopped at the uh, car. She put the glasses on. And what a dramatic difference when you put those glasses on. You can see exactly what's happening. And there was still enough of a phenomenon going on that she was just fascinated. She remembered very vividly 1979. And so it was fun for her to uh, revisit that now in 2017. So it was a, uh, it was a pretty amazing thing. Uh, some of the headlines, millions pour into towns in path of totality of total eclipse. Uh, many feel let down. We kind of touched on that on Friday. Gas prices drip up, traffic nightmare, temperatures drop, birds quiet, giraffes, rhinos, and uh, uh, run around crazily. Cows lay down in fields. Some of the headlines that I read. Well, the uh, solar eclipse 2017 cast a shadow all across the United States. It began, of course, here in Oregon. The great American eclipse officially uh, concluded. Um, It reached Oregon's coast near Lincoln City at about 10 a.m., marked the beginning of the 70-mile path of totality across the country. NASA's G3 the aircraft picked up the stunning celestial event in Salem, showing the black orb of the moon covering the blazing sun to create a glowing halo. We didn't get to see uh, the total eclipse, but what we saw was pretty uh, amazing. The awe-inspiring moment cast uh, total blackness over the area. It uh, then stretched across 13 other states, Idaho, a silver, a sliver rather of Montana, uh, Wyoming, Nebraska, Kansas, a tiny portion of Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. In most places, the total eclipse uh, lasted less than a minute, but the longest period of darkness uh, was two minutes, 44 seconds over Shawnee National Forest in southern Illinois. New Yorkers and folks all across the U.S., um, stargazers were warned to wear their special glasses, their sunglasses to protect their uh, their peepers, but could remove them when the moon completely covered the sun. We never did because that didn't happen here. But the historic solar eclipse, which uh, partially was visible to everyone in the United States, but in different ways, as well as parts of Central and South America, uh, ended at about 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Well, what started as a total eclipse in Oregon ended with a traffic nightmare. Well, it wasn't quite the nightmare they predicted, but it was heavy traffic. Uh, with an estimated 1 million people coming to the state for uh, for the total solar eclipse, the Oregon Department of Transportation said the result could be the biggest traffic event in Oregon history. I think we may have fallen short of that, although the jury is still out. It may not have lived up to the pre-eclipse height, but freeway traffic was slow for lots of drivers who were heading south to the path of totality. Minutes after the total eclipse ended, drivers hit to the road, hit the road rather, and tried to beat the traffic home. Of course, they were the traffic home. On Interstate 5, as of 1230, traffic on Interstate 
Uh, five was very slow heading north and south of Salem. The drive time from Salem to Portland was about three hours, 30 minutes, giving you some perspective. In central Oregon, as of noon today... Uh, they got traffic on uh, U.S. 97 south of Madras and north of uh, Redmond was stop and go. Despite warnings from the Department of Transportation, drivers uh, parked along at, at least one Central Oregon highway in anticipation of the eclipse. They warned that uh, uh, the tactic would be very dangerous due to the extreme fire danger in the area. ODOT said the shoulders were for emergencies only. People didn't really listen, and so they viewed it from that vantage point, and we hope that that didn't result in any more fire damage here in Eastern Oregon, according to trip check, they showed some uh, delays in the John day area um, on Thursday and Friday. This morning, traffic heading in all directions was a bit slower than average, but there were no major uh, incidents reported in that area along the coast. Again, trip check. They showed uh, traffic was slower than average after the eclipse, but it was stop and go traffic near Lincoln city. Traffic uh, sped up on uh, 101. Uh, up and down the coast around noon on, uh, well, today, still slower than average, but no major incidents were reported. So I'd say all in all, we fared the whole uh, incident fairly well. Oh, by the way, you may have uh, seen the International Space Station fly across the sun during the eclipse. If you looked closely, well, if you had to have some help with that, uh, during the eclipse, you can see a tiny speck crossing the sun. That speck is actually the International Space Station with a crew of six astronauts aboard. I don't think we saw that, but pretty cool to know. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I appreciated a column by David uh, Douglas Estes uh, in Christianity Today Online is America's Great Eclipse, a sign from God. Well, he writes, one day last week, a strange pack of 3D-like glasses showed up on our kitchen counter, and I remembered that on Monday, I will be in the direct path of a total solar eclipse. Where I live in Columbia, South Carolina, a city billing itself as the total solar eclipse capital of the East Coast, people will experience two minutes and 36 seconds of total solar joy. Total solar eclipses are normal astronomical events that occur with surprising regularity. It is possible that Thales of Miletus was able to predict a solar eclipse in the 6th century B.C., and modern astronomers can calculate their occurrences for millions of years in either direction, past or future. A total solar eclipse is visible from somewhere on Earth all Almost every 18 months. Yet most people may only come close enough to the thin trajectory to see this kind of eclipse once in a lifetime. The last total solar eclipse in the continental United States was in 1979. The last transcontinental total solar eclipse was 99 years ago in 1918. Yet eclipses remind us that what is rare for most humans is simply a regular astronomical event to God. To people, the occurrence of an eclipse is like a thousand years, but to God, its occurrence is like a day. Are they signs from God? Well, if so, it isn't uh, their irregularity that makes them special. Perhaps it's that God is working through the normal, natural cycle of our universe, ever-present, though not always noticed. Total solar eclipse creates spect- spectacle, rather, whenever they occur. Though totally natural, they feel weird. Animals act strange, switching to a nighttime routine as the totality occurs. And eclipse chasers travel the world to see the total solar eclipses whenever and wherever possible. Communities all across the U.S., including churches and the path 
wrath of totality, planned all kinds of special events. Where I live, he writes, some churches, such as Seacoast Church Columbia, encourage folks to come out to an eclipse party. Other churches, such as First Baptist Church Columbia, gave out free eclipse glasses if you went to Sunday school. Well, that's one way to get people to church. Total solar eclipses create gloomy reactions in some people. Throughout history, people have understandably viewed them as a sign that something is wrong. For example, Plutarch records that during the um, Peloponnesian War, a solar eclipse struck fear in the Athenian navy that was only dispelled by Pericles explaining how eclipses work. And in the Talmud, rabbis were known to discuss what types of eclipses were bad signs for what types of people. Even today, people are tempted to read an eclipse as a sign from God of bad things to come, or at least newspapers are to create clicks. For Christians, our ideas about eclipses originate with our assumptions about astronomical events in biblical texts. We read how the sun became dark for Joshua, how the sky darkened during Jesus' crucifixion, about the darkened sun on the day the Lord, uh, um, the day of the Lord rather, in Joel, or about the sun turning black as sackcloth in Revelation. Some people look in regular astronomical events like total solar eclipses to help us understand those texts. In January, Israeli scientists pinpoint the day of a solar eclipse that could have occurred during the Joshua battle at Gilgal. But the events described in Joshua, Joel, and Revelation are not regular natural occurrences. They are special supernatural events. In Joshua, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. If a solar eclipse occurred that day, it would have lasted only minutes. God, in the rarest of occasions, interrupts time and space to make his point. And of course, he oversees Time and space, my editorial comment. He goes on, as Dale Allison Jr., Richard J. Dearborn, professor of um, New Testament at Princeton Seminary, explains, when Origen was debating the Christian antagonist Celsius, or rather Celsus, one way he defended the miracle of Jesus was to point to a record of an eclipse in the work of a pagan writer that potentially coincided with the three hours of darkness during the crucifixion. But apparently, later in Origen's life, he wrote a commentary on Matthew where he covers the issue in more detail. Here, Origen realizes that a simple eclipse cannot do justice to the biblical story. Fans of eclipses may be disappointed to know that there are no clear-cut examples of eclipses recorded in the Bible. However, there is one clear use of the eclipse in a book that was likely known to Jesus, Paul. James, and most of the first Christians. It occurs in the wisdom of Ben Syrah, which many people today call Ecclesiastes. In his book, popular among the Jewish uh, Hebrew people in Jesus' day, Ben Syrah reaches a point where he calls on the people of God to repent of their sins. People are nothing compared to God. We don't have the power to even change the course of our lives. What is brighter than the sun? Yet it can be eclipsed, he wrote. We humans have to reveal in our splendor, have to revel rather in our splendor, but we are so naturally eclipsed by our brokenness. With all the hype over the great American solar eclipse, one might think that this regular natural phenomenon is something important to say to us. It does, but it's not a sign from God. Rather, it's a reminder from his creation that while we revel in our human splendor, it is no comparison to the greatness of God himself. We may chase after signs or eclipses, but really what we should be chasing after is a humility before the goodness of our creator, God. Tomorrow, he writes, concluding, my family and I will go out and see the eclipse, having written this the day before, with appropriate safety glasses, not because I believe it is a sign from God, but because I know it is more than that. It is a regular, natural, astronomical occurrence that lets me know that I am but a small part of God's grand creation, and I hope others come to know that as well. 
Uh, and then uh, this just this little um, portion of a column that was written by Ed's. Um, let me find his uh, bio here so I can get it right. Um, Ed Stetzer, who holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Church, Mission, and Evangelism at Wheaton College. He's the executive director of the Billy Graham Center and publishes church leadership resources through Mission Group. He writes, and I'm just jumping in somewhere in the middle, uh, after a, a brief headline focusing on an eclipse distracts us from focusing on Christ. He says, the truth is this. Christians have always believed that Jesus is going to return and might return at any moment. We call that the imminent return of Christ. The Bible does give us clarity in Matthew 24 that celestial signs will happen, but when the cumulative event happens, it will be undeniable. Until then, Jesus tells us, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. What we do know is that it will come. And that's a reference to Mark 13, 32 and 33. Our job is to be awake, to repent and believe the gospel, to love our friends and neighbors and to, to, and to tell others rather about Jesus. We don't need an eclipse to do that. It's kind of a great opportunity, but we don't need one to do that. If you want a sign of God's judgment, don't look to the sky. We only have to look at ourselves and we can see it when we can't call out evil and when right is called wrong. That's a bigger issue than an eclipse. And then he continues, the eclipse is a sign, a sign of the finely tuned universe that points to an active creator. Comets come and go, eclipses come and go, and Jesus will then come at a time of his choosing unrelated to these things. So maybe rather than seeing signs in the eclipse, we might follow Second Peter 3.11. The point here is how we live and what sort of people we should be in the meantime while we wait for Christ's imminent return. You will know when the end comes. Trust me. Until then, let's make much of Jesus. And again, quoting from Ed Stetzer, uh, writing on the eclipse and what we are to uh, to make of it. And that uh, also appeared. Was that in, in Christianity Today online? All right. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Rahim Kassam. He's the author of No Go Zones, How Sharia Law is coming to a neighborhood near you. Now, that can't be true here, can it? And what do we mean by Sharia law coming here? What difference does it make? And what's this idea of a no-go zone? We're going to talk about all of that when he joins us here in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. No-go zones. Well, that's what they're called. And while the politically correct try to deny their existence, the shocking reality of these no-go zones, where Sharia law can prevail and local police stay away, can be attested to by its many victims. Well, editor-in-chief of Breitbart London, Rahim Kassam, he took a courageous leap to where few journalists have dared to investigate inside the no-go zones. His uh, shocking new book, No-Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You, uncovers the areas uh, that Western governments, including the United States, don't want to admit exist within their borders. Uh, Kassam, uh, he goes into Islamic areas uh, you might not even know existed, communities, neighborhoods, whole city districts from San Bernardino, California, to uh, an area in Michigan, essentially an Islamic colony in the Midwest, from Malmo, Sweden, to the heart of London, England, where infidels are unwelcome, Islamic law is king, and extremism 
grows. Well, my guest, uh, Rahim Kassam, is the editor-in-chief of Breitbart London, a host of Breitbart News Daily on Sirius XM 125 in the United States. He's written for many publications, including the Wall Street Journal in Europe, the Daily Caller, the Jewish Chronicle, the Spectator, the Times of Israel, and the Telegraph. Kassam was the senior advisor uh, to Brexit leader Nigel Farage. When Farage was leader of the UK Independence Party, he is a senior distinguished fellow at the uh, Gatestone Institute and a fellow at the Middle East Forum, and he was previously, uh, or has previously, rather, worked for a think tank, or several, including Henry Jackson Society and Bow Group. Born in London to Tanzanian uh, immigrant parents, um, Kassam was raised in the Islami sect of Shia Islam and studied politics at the University of Westminster. He joins us today to talk about his book, uh, No Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and after that introduction, we're all out of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we practically are, but I think it's important for people to know something uh, about you and and why this is a credible account of what's happening across the uh, the sure. West. Uh, let's begin by uh, defining what Sharia law is, because I don't want to assume that people understand. It's not just a matter of uh, like a Christian code or, or the rules under which uh, uh, Jews would live. Define mm. what Sharia law is and why this is uh, is disconcerting when applied as you write about it. Sure. Well, Sharia law, in in essence, is a literalist and fundamentalist interpretation of the Quran. Uh, This is a legal system. This is a political system. This is a a, a way of life uh, that, you know, hardcore Muslims want want everyone to live by. And and I say everyone, I mean Muslims and non-Muslims. The data borne out in this book from the Pew Research Center actually shows that 40% of some young British Muslims believe that Sharia should be implemented in the United Kingdom. Uh, These are absolutely astronomical figures. This is is an ideology, this is a a system of law that commands that people's hands and feet are cut off if they, they, uh, quote, uh, perform mischief in in Islamic lands. This is a a supremacist ideology. It, it It prefers... Uh, Allah's law, the, the Sharia, over the U.S. Constitution, over the British parliamentary law, over, over every single thing it touches or comes into contact with. And, and I don't want to beat around the bush. It is, it is, it is a, a violent, uh, violent way to expect countries to be run and people to live their lives. Now, when you write about no-go zones, these are areas that you are describing where outsiders are not welcome. Uh, where law enforcement, for example, uh, will mm. not enter for a variety of reasons, safety being one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw it firsthand in uh, in parts of Sweden, no less. You know, this this liberal paradise. Uh, you have the police officers who who simply won't go to these areas in small numbers. They have to go in very very large numbers. Um, they have to be. There's basically a police that that protects the police. Um, there are places postal services won't deliver. There are places buses won't stop in the, the northern Parisian suburbs. In, in Tower Hamlets in East London, after I had finished writing the book, I went back. In fact, I took a New York Times magazine journalist with me. And uh, as soon as we got there, we were told that we weren't welcomed by a, a gang of young Muslim youths. And, and after the visit, I said to this guy, who is a, again, New York Times magazine liberal, 
And I said to him, do you think we oversell it when we report on these things at, at Breitbart London? And he turned to me and he said, actually, I think you probably undersell it, um, which is a real eye-opener for me as well. And, and, and I've just been on MSNBC just now, of all places, talking about this. And, and they, had to co- they had to agree with me. Sharia is a, is, a, is, a, is a tyrannical order, and it's trying to implement itself here in the United States, too. So what you're talking about is Sharia law trumping in this country U.S. law. It's not it's not uh, a law that would be applied in in terms of individuals who hold a, a particular religious worldview. It would apply to everyone within a geographic area, and it would trump the rights that we enjoy in this country. Is is that a a, a correct interpretation of how Sharia law would be applied in a community? Well, I mean that is that is the end goal. Um, I'm not I'm not trying to claim that we're anywhere near that position, but that is certainly the 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 aim. Of the Sharia supremacists, of these of these radical mosques, these radical imams, that's what they want. You saw, you, you know, you can all see the pictures online when these guys get together on the streets of London, uh, all over Europe, to uh, to hold up signs that say Sharia for Britain, Sharia in America, all of this sort of stuff. It, it, it's not it's not something that can even rub alongside the U.S. Constitution, and nor should we even be having that discussion. It's something that wants to usurp it. So it's important to understand what Sharia law is intended. Now, why should we be concerned about this? You you point out that this is not only a concern in some European uh, communities where we are familiar with the challenges they face, but in the United States mm. as well? Yes, absolutely. And in a variety of ways, too. I don't want to uh, I don't want to say that all of even these European towns and cities have the same problems or the same extent of the problems. For instance, Molenbeek in Brussels is far worse down the line than, than Dewsbury in Yorkshire in England. Uh, and the same thing is true over here. I traveled across the United States looking for this stuff. I was in San Bernardino when the terrorist attack happened at the Inland Regional Center. Um, and, and, you know, while there isn't Sharia and there isn't a no-go zone there, what I'm talking about in the book is, is, is when we look to where the radicalizing factors are. San Bernardino showed clearly what I call a no-go zone of the mind. Now, that is that we knew these two people who went on to be terrorists were attending a radical mosque. We knew that it was a radical mosque, and, and, and yet the security services and the authorities do very little to challenge these places or even try to shut them down. In Michigan, you have a, a museum sponsored by the Ford Corporation and the Lear Corporation alongside the Saudi Arabian government and Saudi Aramco. And this museum actually has anti-U.S. government propaganda inside it. It has pictures of Israeli soldiers as, as demons, ghouls, and goblins. Uh, this, is, this is going on not just under your notice, but with the assistance of, of U.S.-based corporations. Did you know there is a place called Islamburg in New York? Did you know there is a place called Islamville in South Carolina? These are two private compounds that actually uh, have uh, guerrilla warfare training within their, within their premises. Um, and when I speak to the security services about this, when I've interviewed people from the, the Department for Homeland Security, they tell me there simply isn't enough resources to focus on all of this stuff and what we already know, which is the Salafist mindset that, that people identify with the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. We're talking about something entirely different here. We're talking about a, a perhaps a softer form of jihadism. I, I don't believe it's softer, but that's how, that's how a lot of people view it. And, and, your, and your government is not providing the resources to your security services to deal with it. Now, I'm sure this administration will take it far more seriously than the last, but eight years of serious damage was done. Now, d- explain how this is different from, why this isn't equivalent to uh, something like Little Italy or Chinatown, where uh, a culture uh, and mindset prevail, but within the, the context of the host country, if you will. 
Well, I mean, you've answered your own question. If those places, uh, it happens within the context of the of the home country. In Hamtramck, outside just outside of Detroit, it's a 2.1 square mile town, a city. Sorry, and it is uh, it has 17 mosques. Now that's a mosque every third or fourth street corner. This is a place that since 2004, the Islamic call to prayer, the Azan, has been playing out from the mosque into the streets. Uh, the local authority, uh, the city council, is, uh, is, is a Muslim-majority city council now. And residents were complaining that they just didn't want to hear that the Islamic God was better than their God, which is effectively what the Islamic call to prayer says. Uh, uh, you know, Allahu Akbar does not mean God is great. It means our God is greater than yours. And there was this pouring out into the streets of a U.S. city in 2004, as far back as 2004. Um, this is this is not something that wants to you know wants to go alongside well, like you say, as the Italian migrants sought to integrate and assimilate after time. Maybe the second generation, maybe the third generation. Same with the Irish. You can say it for a lot of groups. This group has no uh, has no inclination to do so. The first generation, by the way, absolutely did. They wanted a better life. They wanted to contribute. Um, but the second and third generations, as I as I point out in the book, the statistics are startling. Uh, one in five of every young Muslim Briton, that's between the ages of 16 to 24, said that they back the idea of, of the Charlie Hebdo attacks, a terrorist attack against the magazine that satirized the Prophet Muhammad. Um, there are extraordinarily high numbers of people who want Sharia, as I said at the beginning of the interview, 40% of them saying they want Sharia in the United Kingdom. This these people are not integrating, and actually it's going backwards, not forwards. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Rahim Kassam. The book is titled No Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. The book we're talking about, No Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You. Rahim Kassam is my guest. Put this into perspective of, of the Muslim populations and communities around uh, the United States, for example. How, how large an issue is this? Is this predominant? Is this a fringe movement? Put this into perspective. Sorry, I, I, I just missed the beginning of that. There was a bad breakup in the line. I was just asking you to put into perspective um, how widespread this is. Is this a predominant uh, movement within Islam in the United States, for example, or is this more of a fringe movement? Uh, uh, it's a really great question, because um, I don't wish to portray uh, every Muslim as... Mm-hmm. A Sharia supremacist. I, I think that that is, you know, we get onto very dangerous territory. Uh, there's uh, often this tactic used by the political left where they say things like, "Oh, the president is trying to target 1.2 billion Muslims around the world," when in reality, what we're talking about is Islam and radical Islam, fundamentalist, literalist interpretations of the Quran. Now, the the statistics bear out that in the Western world. Uh, it, it, it goes between about 30 and 40 percent on average across the issues, whereby you can find elements of Sharia supremacism. They come in all different forms. They come in uh, the idea that uh, women have to cover up, you know, wear headscarves, hijabs, niqabs, burqas. As I mentioned before the break, the idea that uh, people have to, uh, people can endorse terrorism as a tactic for a, for a political end uh, and a religious end, thereby talking about how to people satirize Islam and the Prophet Muhammad, there is a vast swathe of Muslims in the West who, who want those people dead. Um, and it comes in all different shapes and forms. It, it can even come down to small things like, like halal food, halal meat, uh, for those who know the practice. 
It's not. It's not like uh, the Jewish ritual slaughter method of Shahita. This is. We have uncovered evidence, uh, masses and masses of evidence, of how poor the conditions are in, in halal abattoirs, how badly the animals are treated, how the hygiene standards are very low. Uh, and yet, for politically correct reasons, we don't ever seem to want to talk about those things. You know, you'll never see Peter marching against a, a halal abattoir that has been, you know, found to, to have horrible animal rights conditions. So it can come in all different forms, all different shapes and sizes. Some of it is terror-related, some of it is crime-related, some of it is even drug-related. Uh, in the United States, you had a situation whereby the owner of a, a, a restaurant chain called La Shish was actually fun, funneling to Hezbollah in Lebanon, the terrorist organization that wants to see the destruction of the state of Israel. And that was a halal restaurant chain. So you, so you see it all across the board. And I wouldn't say it is a majority of ordinary Muslims out there. But as I say, the trend is worsening. We are beginning to see it worsen. The reason we're beginning to see it worsen is because we allow, for some reason in the West, we allow, because, because we're classically liberal in this mindset, uh, a foreign funding of our mosques. In, in the United States and in the United Kingdom, the, the Saudi government typically underwrites um, a great many amount of mosques, and what they ask for in return is for the mosque to push, push a, a, a Salafist, a very hard-line interpretation of the Quran. It could be a Salafist uh, interpretation, it could be a Hanafist interpretation. These are different elements, different schools of Islamic thought, Islamic jurisprudence, but they're not pushing for a moderate one. That's, that's the key point here. And so while I wouldn't seek to argue that this is in the majority amongst Muslim communities in the Western world, we're certainly moving to a position I can see us getting there in about 50 years, less than probably. So what if we fail to address this appropriately and in an effective way, what's likely to happen? I mean, just demographically, what, what's likely to happen if this is not taken seriously? Well, I mean, unfortunately, demographically, it's already uh, bearing out that, 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 you know, Muslim families are having far more children than, than you know, the families native to the nation that, that we might discuss, to the, to the Belgians, to the Germans, to the, to the Brits. Uh, they're all being, you know, for want of a better phrase, outpropriated um, in their own countries. Um, this, this comes with serious ramifications. It comes with ramifications in your politics. It comes with ramifications in your, in your culture. It comes with ramifications for the religious environment. You know, it's, it's extraordinary the number of Jews that are fleeing France and fleeing the United Kingdom at the moment. If you take a look at the graph, it's, it's ticking up in a big, big way. That's because there is a, obviously a virulent strain of anti-Semitism that comes alongside radical Islam and, and comes alongside all of, these, all of these sort of Sharia supremacist notions. If you don't address it here in the United States, and I think the president is going some way to address it with the RAISE Act and with the travel ban, but if you don't prescribe groups like the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization, if you don't stop Saudi funding of mosques in the United States, then you're going to end up with the same thing as Europe has, which is these migrant-dominated enclaves where terrorism festers and grows, uh, where women are treated horrendously, uh, where people are, are forced to cover up, where, where young white women are groomed and raped. I mean, this scandal that we've had in the United Kingdom, just, just look it up. 1,400 white, young white girls groomed and raped by Pakistani men in, in Rotherham. This was happening years ago, and the political establishment didn't want to come to grips with it. It's having to now because it's happened in 16 cities across the United Kingdom. Now, for those familiar with the United Kingdom, that's a lot of cities in the United Kingdom. It's a small country. We're a very small island. Um, and, and this is coming to epidemic proportions here. And I, again, 
I realize how alarmist that this can all sound. And, uh, you know, I am trying to sound the alarm. I'm not trying to panic anyone. And I certainly don't want you uh, to take away that the, the you have to, you know, accost your local uh, cab driver or, or your local convenience store owner. But you have to get informed on these issues. And, and if there is a new mosque being built in your area, for, for example, I walk through which sects you should be looking for. In this book, I look through which denomination uh, is, 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 would be preaching something a little bit more hard line. And, and, and that's what we need to learn and we need to educate ourselves and go to these, you know, your town hall meetings with facts and statistics because too often uh, we're having this emotional argument. We're having this sort of fear-driven argument. And I think we need to be having a, uh, you know, an academic argument about this because the facts are on our side and, and, and those are the things that will win the day. So for average citizens who are concerned, what impact uh, can a, an average person likely have on uh, what may be an, a radicalizing element that's moving into an otherwise peaceful, multicultural community? Well, I mean, you know, there are Muslims persecuted by Muslims. Um, I go into the book in some detail how the Ahmadiyya community in the United Kingdom is persecuted by, by Sunnis. Um, there are, there are um, uh, Chaldeans in Michigan who have told me that they, when they see a new mosque being built in their area, they get a form of PTSD because they fled the Middle East because they were being persecuted by, by radical Islam. And now they're seeing radical Islam pop up in their neighborhoods. Um, for the average person, you know, the, 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 the best thing you can do is actually find the moderates in your communities. Um, there are plenty around. Uh, in the United States, you have somebody called Dr. Zudi Jasser, who is absolutely phenomenal on this. In the United Kingdom, we have a guy called Majid Nawaz. In Canada, Rahil Raza is at the cutting edge of this stuff. And of course, these are, these are practicing Muslims, by the way. I can't claim to be that anymore. But these are practicing Muslims, and the left uh, uh, says that they're hate mongers and scaremongers uh, simply because they don't adhere to Sharia and they don't want Sharia in, in the West. But, but that's what we need to do is drive a wedge between the moderate elements, the people who are integrating, assimilating, and the people who would otherwise radicalize them. Well, to better understand the issue, let me encourage you to read No Go Zones, How Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood New You. It is a balanced uh, uh, approach to uh, the concerns that were raised in our conversation. Rahim Kassam, thank you so much for talking with us. Pleasure's all mine. Appreciate it. Again, the book is published by Regnery. And again, if you'd like to uh, learn more, no-go zones. News and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back eight minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I have to admit, <laughs> I may struggle these first few minutes because we had a celebratory Eclipse ice cream bar. Magnum, incredible. But really, one Magnum bar is for three or four people. <laughs> I'm, concern- I'm convinced that one is, uh, wow, that's so incredibly rich. And mine had a layer of chocolate sauce inside the chocolate coating outside of the uh, vanilla ice cream. You don't want to eat something like that right before you go. I took my last bite while the music was playing. <laughs> it's a bad idea. Anyway, we're going to press on <clears throat> as unprofessional as a good. We can blame it on the eclipse. I would never have done that if it had not been for the eclipse that has influenced my behavior. It's had that impact, and so that's why it all happened. I'm going to go with that. If the general manager asks, Clark, that will be our response. Anyway, wanted to move on to some of the day's news, beginning with the fact that the president is going to speak to the nation tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern or should say Pacific time. And he's going to unveil his Afghanistan strategy in what is uh, being 
called a pivotal speech. The president's going to address the nation tonight to unveil the strategy, becoming the third commander in chief to try to attempt to, um, which is redundant, try to and attempt. They're the same thing. He will be the third commander in chief to attempt to stabilize the war-torn country, to forge a victory in what is now America's longest war. We'll talk more about that history in a few moments. As I mentioned, the speech is set for tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. The president's going to deliver this nationally televised address to troops who are stationed at Army's Joint Base Myers-Henderson Hall, located next to the Arlington National Cemetery. The president tweeted on Saturday that he had reached a decision on the way forward after meeting uh, to review options with top advisors at Camp David. And while the president hasn't revealed the contours of his plan, although some have leaked and we'll share with you uh, a thing or two, Associates expect that he will keep U.S. troops in the country and possibly approve sending thousands more, which we now have confirmed is the case. Uh, David Abbasi, uh, who is the uh, former Trump deputy campaign manager, says, I think he's going to give his generals a chance to prove what they want and their strategy. Well, the stakes are very high. Some 16 years after the 9-11 terror attacks, which first drew U.S. forces into the country, the local government controls just half of the country, beset by the Taliban insurgency and terrorist factions. An Islamic State affiliate has um, uh, been hit uh, hard, but continues to attempt major attacks in that region. Well, politically speaking, Trump also is trying to hit a hit reset after perhaps one of the rockiest stretches of his uh, brief presidency. It's one that's saw multiple staff shakeups and all-consuming controversy last week over his response to the violence in Charlottesville. And the president took heat for, rep- for uh, repeatedly blaming both sides for the clashes at a white supremacist rally where a counter-protester was killed in a car attack. Well, the response was met with a bipartisan rebuke from members of Congress and a wave of resignations from various corporate and other advisory boards. Well, refocusing on national security, the president is now faced with one of the most complex and difficult military challenges of the last three administrations. In Afghanistan, General John Nicholson's comments suggest the Pentagon may have won its uh, argument that the U.S. military has to remain engaged in order to ensure that terrorists aren't again able to threaten the United States from havens inside Afghanistan. Uh, Speaking during a ceremony at Camp uh, Moorhead, a training base for Afghan commandos southeast of Kabul, he said, I assure you, uh, we are with you in this fight. We are with you and we will stay with you. Now, that may be a hint of what the president will announce. The Pentagon was awaiting a final announcement by the president on a proposal to send nearly 4,000 more U.S. troops on top of the 8,400 currently in the country. The added forces would increase training and advising of the Afghan forces and bolster counterterrorism operations against the Taliban and the Islamic State affiliate trying to gain a foothold in that country. The administration has been at odds for months over how to craft and new Afghan war strategy, and the president's been conflicted. He opposed the engagement in the first place and said it has been mishandled from the very beginning, and that those who were charged with overseeing it didn't really know what they were doing. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who visited Afghanistan over the weekend, declared himself satisfied with how the administration has formulated its new strategy, but he refused rather to discuss details before the president's announcement. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich predicted on Fox and Friends today that the president will opt to send additional troops, which has now been confirmed, putting uh, an emphasis on training the Afghan military, saying, I think in the long run, that will be the right strategy. Well, we'll see if, in fact, that's what the president 
does. Some of the things to watch for, uh, the president didn't offer any clues on social media as to what specific decisions were made pertaining to Afghanistan. So what are his options there? Well, in a statement about the speech, the White House said the president will provide an update on the path forward for America's engagement in Afghanistan and South Asia. He has uh, several options when it comes to Afghanistan, from withdrawing troops altogether, ending America's longest war, to sending additional military personnel. And it seems at this point that third option is the most likely. Well, the challenge for the president, which tested former President Barack Obama as well, is how to continue to fight terrorism and the Taliban while still promoting peace. The administration's Afghanistan strategy is expected to be shaped by a review of its approach to the broader uh, region, including Pakistan and in, uh, India. Defense Secretary James Mattis, who visited the country over the weekend, declared himself satisfied. Uh, what um, what do Republicans want? Well, among elected leaders in the U.S., uh, uh, opinions are mixed about America's future role there. Ohio Governor John Kasich, he favors withdrawing the approximately 8,400 U.S. troops currently there, not sending more. Others suggest that more troops are in order. Uh, I want our people to be able to come home, Kasich said during an interview on CNN on Sunday. Senator John McCain, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, unveiled his own plan for Afghanistan last week, which would increase ground and air forces in the Middle Eastern country. He said the U.S. needs to put strict conditions on continued assistance to Afghanistan and require that Kabul government demonstrate measurable progress in curbing corruption, strengthening the rule of law and improving financial transparency. Well, the Pentagon months ago settled on a plan to send nearly 4000 additional troops to aid the Afghan army. And it's awaiting that final announcement, which is expected to be made by the president tonight. Well, ahead of the speech. Uh, General John Nicholson, the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, hailed the launch of the Afghan army's new special operations corps and declared that uh, we're with you. His comments suggested the Pentagon may have won its argument, and we'll find out uh, shortly if, in fact, that is the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the president's speech expected at about 6 o'clock p.m. our time this evening, in which he's going to announce his uh, Afghanistan strategy. Uh, we are hearing that the president has, in fact, approved sending 4,000 more troops to Afghanistan, according to a senior official. Uh, Trump is set to unveil that strategy, becoming the third commander-in-chief to attempt to stabilize this uh, war-torn country, to forge a victory in what is now America's longest war. The speech, as I mentioned, is... Uh, Scheduled for 6 o'clock p.m. our time, the president is going to deliver the nationally televised address to troops stationed at the Army's Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall, located next to Arlington National Cemetery. Well, 16 years is a very long time. It began in October of 2001 when President George W. Bush announced Operation Enduring Freedom, which began with U.S. military forces deploying to Afghanistan to combat the global war on terrorism. The action was a response to 9-11 terrorist attacks that claimed the lives of thousands of innocent Americans. December 2014, after 13 years of combat operations, President Obama announced the end of Operation Enduring Freedom. In 2015, Secretary of Defense Hagel announced that the U.S. mission in Afghanistan would focus on training, advising and assisting Afghan security forces and designated it as Operation Freedom's Sentinel. On Monday, 
Tonight, President Trump will address the nation to outline his strategy for the region. Um, The U.S. first deployed troops there in 2001. The level was 100,000 troops in 2011. The U.S. uh, currently maintains 8,400 military personnel there, 2,000 of which are fighting al-Qaeda and ISIS in the region, according to the Department of Defense and Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. There have been 2,260 deaths. 2,260 individuals who lost their lives there and more than 20,000 wounded since the U.S. first sent troops to Afghanistan, according to the Department of Defense. Since 2001, the United States has obligated an estimated $714 billion for its efforts in Afghanistan. That's according to the most recent data available. That includes an estimated $110 billion obligated for relief, reconstruction, civilian operations, according to a report from Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of the 9-11 terror attacks, is found hiding in, in Pakistan and killed in a U.S. special operations raid. Uh, that was one of the highlights in this um, Operation Enduring Freedom Beyond that, it has been 16 years of uh, fighting, monitoring, equipping, and waiting. The U.S. government had reportedly offered a $25 million reward for information related to bin Laden's whereabouts, and he was ultimately found. Well, 10 sailors are missing, five injured after the guided missile destroyer USS John S. McCain, named after John Mc- Senator John McCain's father collided with a tanker east of Singapore and the Strait of Malacca. The U.S. Navy reported on Sunday. Authorities said four of those injured were medically evacuated by a Singapore Navy helicopter. They suffered non-life-threatening injuries. We don't know about the fifth. Search and rescue efforts were launched in coordination with local authorities, the Navy said. Initial reports indicated the warship sustained damage to its port side um, aft the left rear of the ship. The collision occurred at 6.24 a.m. Japan Standard Time. There is a massive search and rescue underway involving tugboats out of Singapore and helicopters. And MV-22 Osprey is expected to arrive as well. The president returning to the White House from his working vacation responded to word of the collision saying, that's too bad, end quote. The warship is named after, as I mentioned, John S. McCain Sr., John McCain Jr.'s uh, Uh, both admirals of the U.S. Navy and the grandfather and father, respectively, of the Arizona senator. Well, the ship is based at uh, Fleet's home port in uh, Yokosuba, Japan. It was commissioned in 1994, has a crew of 23 officers, 24 chief petty officers, 291 enlisted sailors, according to the Navy's website. Uh, The uh, merchant vessel USS John S. McCain collided with the Alnick MC, uh, a 600-foot oil and chemical tanker. Now, the question is, how did that happen? 6.24 a.m. Uh, this crash came days after the top three leaders aboard the USS Fitzgerald were relieved of their command, and that warship was damaged badly in a collision off the coast of Japan. That killed seven sailors in June. One of its compartments flooded uh, in about 90 seconds. USS John S. McCain sailed by... Uh, contested man-made islands in the South China Sea after the uh, rather early uh, in the in the month, drawing China's strong dissatisfaction. Senator John McCain tweeted Sunday night he and his wife Cindy were uh, keeping the sailors in their prayers. He recently visited the warship in Vietnam. Well, this marked the fourth mishap the U.S. Navy 
uh, ships in the Pacific since uh, February. Aside from the USS McCain, there's the USS Fitzgerald incident, the Navy cruiser USS uh, Antietam. Uh, ran aground, dumping over 1,000 gallons of oil in Tokyo Bay in February. In May, another cruiser, USS Lake Champlain, hit the South Korean fishing vessel. An active-duty Navy officer expressed concern over the training of young Navy officers aboard ships. It's not the same level of training you used to get, he said, which raises questions about the level of funding and whether or not we are stretched too thin. And if we are, in fact, prepared for the the potential of military engagement with North Korea, Uh, this USS... um, Uh, John S. McCain uh, is one of the uh, uh, guided missile destroyers. Two of them are now uh, the the, uh, have now been damaged as a result of this kind of uh, of accident. Well, as I mentioned, search is underway for 10 sailors after the collision near Singapore. The ship has significant damage. Diving operations are set to begin uh, or began rather today as American, Singaporean, Malaysian armed forces search for 10 missing U.S. sailors after that early morning collision. Ten individuals. Um, uh, between the uh, Navy destroyer and the tanker near Singapore. U.S. Navy officials said that diving operations will begin inside the flooded compartments aboard the USS John S. McCain. Um, A large amphibious assault ship, the USS America, uh, arrived there uh, in the Singapore port port near the uh, stricken Navy destroyer and will lead the diving efforts Uh, in the last collision. You might recall those 10 were uh, those uh, uh, dead were found in the uh, the ship but were trapped when the collision took place, and that may in fact be the case here. In the meantime, the Navy has decided to pause operations to review the collision with uh, the 10 missing. The uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis responded as um, this being the latest in a series of uh, accidents involving uh, U.S. military, U.S. Navy vessels. I was going to review the, the history of them, but I think I've sufficiently mentioned those events, but you can find more detail about what happened in these previous episodes as well. All terror suspects identified as part of the 12 person extremist cell responsible for coordinating the deadly uh, Spain attacks last week, including a former imam, uh, are either dead or under address, uh, under arrest, rather, according to authorities. The suspended dri- uh, driver behind the Barcelona terror attack was shot dead today, wrapped up the multi day international manhunt for Europe's most wanted man who's believed to be the final member of the Spanish extremist cell behind last week's incidents. Now we're talking about 12 individuals who somehow made it under the radar. This was not an isolated event. This was a coordinated to be a much larger event. Among them is an imam uh, who was accused of recruiting and radicalizing the other attackers. Regional police chief Joseph Luis Trapero said that of the 12 member terror group, four people were under arrest. The officer added that eight others are dead, including the driver, the Moroccan born 22 year old man suspected of ramming a van into pedestrians uh, at the promenade, one of the city's most popular tourist attractions. Well, Spanish police confirmed the suspicious person they confronted uh, in a town 28 miles west of Barcelona was, in fact, that driver. Five other members of the terror group were fatally shot by police uh, after police suspected a possible second terror attack. Two others, including the imam, were killed in a house explosion uh, the night before Thursday's attack. Um, the daughter of uh, one of the victims told the Associated Press that her father, father rather alerted police after they saw a car crossing their property at high speed, even though the vineyard was uh, closed. He is a vineyard owner. We heard a helicopter flying around in many police cars coming toward the gas station. And uh, that is when and where the last of the 12 
uh, was killed. With each new Islamist-fueled terror attack on European soil, at least two things can be certain, that the intended devastation was to be much worse and that it won't be long before the next assault occurs. Harris Rafiq and Muna Abdil point out that authorities investigating last week's van attack in Barcelona, which left 13 people dead and scores more injured, believe it was the work of a 12-person terror cell. All 12 now been, have been either arrested or killed, including the final member who was shot dead Monday just west of the city. Authorities believe the group had been planning a bigger, deadlier attack involving gas explosives. As Islamic State uh, continues to lose territory in Syria and struggle to maintain its relevance, there's been a rise in such low-tech, high-impact attacks on soft targets. Western governments have been doing a good job of adapting security systems to those attacks, helping to mitigate the damage. Yet there's a difference between responding to and preventing acts of terrorism. Well, Spain is as a terror target may have come as a surprise to some, but it shouldn't have. For 700 years, the territory of uh, Al-Andalus which included what is today modern Spain, remained under Muslim rule. It wasn't until the uh, Reconquista of 1492 that the Islamic Empire lost its prized territory in the European heartland and began its slow decline. We'll tell you more about how Spain became a target. Madrid is effectively um, thwarting many potential plots, but now has to counter Islamic ideology as well. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, talking about uh, a column about how Spain became a terror target. And the uh, the writers Haras Rafiq and Muna Abdil point out that in the Islamic world, the loss of uh, some 700 years ago of um, uh, an area that included modern Spain remained under um, uh, Muslim rule, that that loss uh, lingered as a point of contention with, Os- with Osama bin Laden justifying the 2004 Madrid train bombing that killed 191 people by saying this is only part of the settlement of old scores with Crusader Spain. As recently as last year, Islamic State warned Spain, we will recover our land from the invaders. So they have a very long view of history and what belongs uh, to them. On a practical level, they point out that experts have long considered the country a terrorist hub linking Europe to Iraq and Syria, not least because of its geographical location. Though physically distant from the main fighting in Iraq and Syria, its proximity to North Africa, its easy links to Western Europe make it an ideal center for jihadist activity. It's also a major finance hub for terror networks in Iraq and Syria. Since 2004, Madrid bombing, uh, since the bombing, Spain's security apparatus has been intensifying its uh, Efforts to uproot and disrupt the underground networks operating on its soil and to a large extent has been successful. In February of last year, authorities arrested seven members of a cell responsible for sending goods to fighters in Iraq and Syria. In April this year, Spanish police arrested nine people with possible ties to recent attacks in Belgium and France. A day later, police arrested two men suspected of recruiting for Islamic State and helping fighters travel back to Europe. At present, 700 suspected terrorists have been arrested, 120 imprisoned, and a further 259 investigated by courts, all while Spanish police are monitoring more than 1,000 high-risk individuals. Close to 500 phones are being tapped. Between 1996 and 2013, nearly 29% of people sentenced for jihadist-related terrorism offenses were arrested in the province 
province of Barcelona. Perhaps in response to Spain's crackdown earlier this year, jihadists warned that they would intensify their campaign of terror in major areas of the Mediterranean. The CIA warned Spanish police two months ago that Barcelona was a potential target, even highlighting Las Ramblas, the uh, street where last week's attack occurred as a, as a particularly vulnerable location. But it's not enough just to prepare for the next terror attack and minimize the death toll. More must be done, the writers point out, to tackle the root of the problem and challenge the Islamic Salafi ideology that's been behind the recent spate of senseless violence. Salafism is arguably the most puritanical brand of Islam, with adherents adopting the most fundamentalist reading of the Quran. These are the fanatics who populate al-Qaeda and Islamic State. To undermine this ideology, we first must address the myopic political correctness that appears to tolerate views contrary to everything the Western liberal world stands for, all for the sake of protecting minorities. The West must realize that it commits a grave injustice to mainstream Muslims when it fails to name and shame and challenge this Islamist ideology and refuses to isolate the extremists in uh, their midst. Again, quoting from Mr. Rafiq, who is the CEO of the Quilliam International, where Ms. Abdil is a researcher. They conclude the Muslim community in Spain is among the most well integrated in Europe and has some of the lowest rates of radicalization on the continent. Not only have Muslim communities lauded Spanish authorities, uh, efforts to eradicate the terror networks in the country, but they insist on more being done. According to the secretary of the Islamic Commission in the, Sp- the Spanish city of Sueta, the police are doing things well with recruitment slowing down, but all of the efforts are related to security and not to education. We need social measures. Mr. Mateus is right until we address the and, and debilitate the fundamentalist ideology that is the root cause of Islamist extremism. We cannot hope to be safe from the terror on our streets, no matter how exceptional our intelligence and security apparatus. And the two of them, of course, are living in Spain and write about the history of why Spain has been a target and uh, what has uh, has been done and what is being done moving forward. Well, this was another weekend of turmoil over monuments here in this country. An anti-Confederate protest in Houston was so volatile that the police horses wore protective gear. Um, if uh, something even resembles a Confederate flag, it's coming down in uh, some areas, according to the New York Post. And Duke University rewarded those who vandalized a statue there by removing it. Statues were removed overnight at the University of Texas. A um, uh, Vandalizing non-Confederate monuments has continued. Alan Dershowitz says that liberals are obligated to condemn the hypocrisy of the left, as the right must as well. California is gaining in uh, the number of groups under the category of hate. And now there's talk... Um, uh, that all this uh, Confederate outrage could backfire in 2018 during the midterm elections. Meanwhile, the city of Chattanooga is refusing to keep up a uh, Confederate cemetery there. And state senator, um, uh, whose name is, um, where's her name? Chappelle Nadal. Anyway, the state senator who wished for Trump's assassination has apologized, but says she will not resign. According to the story, the lieutenant governor, Mike Parson, has said that he will ask the senators to remove her. She lives in the St. Louis suburb of University City from office if she does not resign by the time lawmakers convene in September to consider veto overrides. This is not her first splash on national news stage, but she has uh, backtracked or backed down. We'll see what happens there. Well, in Texas, a man was arrested um, uh, 
after he allegedly tried to destroy a Confederate statue in a park during the weekend by planning, uh, ex- planting rather explosives. The 25-year-old was charged with attempting to maliciously damage or destroy property, receiving federal financial assistance. A Houston park ranger spotted um, the 25-year-old uh, Saturday night in Herman Park in Houston, kneeling near the statue of Richard Dowling, a lieutenant in the Confederate Army. The ranger confronted him. Um, he had two boxes that contained duct tape, wires, and a bottle of liquid containing a highly explosive compound. It was uh, und- in its undiluted form, one of the world's most powerful explosives, he said. Well, the um, individual allegedly tried to drink the liquid before ultimately spitting it out, maybe trying to end his life or to try to conceal what was in it. He previously received five years of probation for pleading guilty in 2014 to improperly storing explosive materials, and now he was attempting to detonate explosive materials. Meanwhile, a petition put up just days ago urging the Trump administration to label the left-wing Antifa a terror group has attracted well over 100,000 signatures needed to merit a formal White House response. The group has been the subject of intense scrutiny in recent days after the president uh, blamed both sides for the violence in Chattanooga, where the counter-protesters at the white supremacist rally uh, was killed in a car attack. The president's uh, criticism of violence on the uh, of the alt-left was seen as a swipe at groups like Antifa, Uh, whose anti-fascist members have been known to clash with groups ranging from Trump supporters to white supremacists to neo-Nazis. Trump was uh, hammered for seeming to equate Charlottesville's uh, counter-protesters with neo-Nazis in terms of the violent per- violence perpetrated at the event. But in the days since, Antifa's tactics at other rallies have been the subject of numerous media reports. The White House petition posted by someone going only by the name, uh, the initials rather, M.A., called for Antifa to be formally recognized as a terror group. Meanwhile, CNN has changed a headline on Sunday of a story on Antifa, the movement, after members of the group complained. I wish that was always the case. You complained, CNN changed the headline. Uh, journalist Sarah Gannam and Chris Welch originally published the article under the headline Unmasking the Leftist Antifa Movement. Activists seek peace through violence, according to International Journal Review Benny Johnson. Well, CNN then changed the headline to Unmasking the Leftist Antifa Movement after representatives of the group complained. Uh, the story had been updated to clarify that counter-protesters say they are not to blame for the violence in Charlottesville or elsewhere. The story's headline has also been updated Uh, The note at the bottom of the article read, the piece featured a video interview in which several members of Antifa appear wearing all black with black sunglasses, hats and bandanas covering their faces. And although CNN changed the headline, the violence depicted in the article remained. One activist described his actions in detail, which included pulling guns on fascists, smoke bombing areas, being arrested several times during the course of various protests. And even though it only takes one person to break a window, he went on to say it doesn't matter because the block moves together. Well, members of Antifa clashed with reporters um, uh, during the inaugural protest. Several members punched a reporter, tried to steal cameras used to film the ongoing march. They also harassed reporters during the May Day protest in D.C., as well as in several other smaller demonstrations over the summer. So the back and forth over who's violent and who's not continues. Uh, this petition will see whether or not that has much of an impact uh, moving forward. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. In just a moment, I'll let you know some of what's happening uh, for the remainder of this week on the program. But I did want to mention that uh, Planned Parenthood is, uh, is condemning uh, what is, well, a choice to reverse an abortion procedure. Now, maybe you haven't heard about this, but as you probably do know, uh, Planned Parenthood Federation of America claims that they stand for a woman's right to choose. That means they can choose one thing or another, reject one option in favor of another. Well, the organization tweeted last week that they condemned women's choice to have an abortion reversal. I know what you're thinking. Abortion reversal? What is that? Well, they were referring to a procedure discovered by two pro-life doctors that has uh, reversed the effects of the abortion pill, RU486, and actually revived or saved lives. Well, Arkansas enacted um, in 2016 a law saying that women must be informed when they're given the abortion pill that they can reverse a chemical abortion through this procedure. Now, other states are considering similar legislation as well, according to The Independent. Well, also, California Board of Registered Nursing recently allowed Heartbeat International, the National Institutes of Family and Life Advocates, to train nurses in this reversal procedure. Uh, That was reported in Pregnancy News. Well, on the 8th of this month, Planned Parenthood tweeted, don't let this uh, phrase fool you. Abortion reversal is a flat-out false and dangerous myth. Well, they linked to a story from Vice News titled, Meet the Doctor Who Convinces Women He Can Reverse Abortions. The report referred to Dr. George Delgado, uh, MD, and said that he saved uh, his first patient in 2009 by treating a woman with progesterone injecting after injections rather after she had taken the abortion pill. Dr. Delgado, a family uh, practitioner, is currently the medical director and co-founder of an organization called Abortion Pill Reversal, a program of Culture of Life Family Services, a not-for-profit which offers family medicine and helps with unplanned pregnancies. Among his many medical credentials, Delgado is board certified in family medicine, has Uh, been practicing since 1988. He also is a natural family planning medical consultant and is trained in uh, NAPRO technology at Pope Paul uh, Institute. He founded APR with uh, Dr. Matthew Harrison, um, a resident of uh, North Carolina who's a medical advisor for Priests for Life and also is medical director of the Student Health Clinic at Belmont Abbey College. On its website, um, they uh, have a hotline for women who have taken the abortion pill and regret their choice. Now, I'm not sure what the timing is on this. I'm just learning about it as you are. But APR puts callers in touch with a doctor near them in order to reverse the chemical abortion. Now, according to Planned Parenthood's website, a woman can take the abortion pill within 10 weeks of becoming pregnant. The chemical abortion actually is two pills. The first is methipristone or something pronounced similar to that, a chemical which blocks a woman's progesterone production in order to prevent the baby, baby rather from living and growing. The second uh, is taken 24 to 48 hours later and evacuates the baby from the body. Hence, it is a chemical abortion. Well, Dr. Delgado and Dr. Harrison found that by injecting the woman's body with progesterone within 72 hours of taking the first pill, uh, there is a significant chance that the baby will live. Progesterone um, combats the effects of the drug, but it's not able to have an effect if the woman has taken the second pill. Well, two days after the first post, Planned Parenthood Federation of America posted on Twitter, laws in some states force doctors to tell this lie to patients, but here's the truth, it's unethical and dangerous. 
Now, here we have the pot calling the kettle black. Planned Parenthood talking about a procedure that is supposed to revive a living human embryo before a second chemical uh, drug is administered that would flush the developing human life from the woman's body. And they are referring to that as unethical and dangerous when they traffic in nothing but unethical and dangerous behavior as the number one abortion provider in the country. Well, the story from a website called Pop Sugar and the headline, The Myth of Abortion Reversal is Making a Comeback. Here's why it's dangerous accompanying the post. Now, dangerous uh, in they're not suggesting that it's a danger to the woman, but that it's misleading. Uh, in any event, it's a, a rather interesting story, and I'm going to uh, dig a bit deeper and follow it cl- more closely uh, because it uh, it certainly suggests um, that this uh, that any regret that follows taking the first pill, not the second. Uh, could, in fact, be reversed. And again, we'll look uh, more deeply into that. Well, taking a look at uh, what's coming up uh, this week on the program, tomorrow we're going to talk with Ron Moore. He's the author of Worn Out by Obedience, Recovering from Spiritual Fatigue. Now, I should probably whisper that because we're never to admit that uh, we are worn out as uh, as believers, but sometimes we are worn out. Uh, and we're going to talk with him about his own experience, which may sound very similar to some of yours. On Wednesday, um, Wednesday rather, Marion Jordan Ellis will join us. She's the author of Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. And on Thursday, we'll talk with Lee Strobel, whose story and book were made into a movie uh, last year, and the DVD is out. We'll uh, talk all about that uh, when he joins us here on on Thursday. I opened the program with Psalm 19. Of course, we were reflecting on the eclipse that took place earlier today, and I had the opportunity to witness that with Clark and some of my fellow co-workers up on the roof of the building here, and that was a fantastic vantage point to uh, to observe the eclipse. And those glasses make such a tremendous difference in being able to see exactly what's happening. We talked about it at greater length at the open of the show, so if you want to hear more about it, you can uh, you can go to our podcast. But I wanted to close today's program with uh, Psalm 19. This is the New International Version, because I think it puts things into perspective. Uh, the eclipse is a fascinating astronomical show, but it can do one of two things. It can draw our attention to that thing and distract us from more important and more significant things, or it can draw us closer to the Creator, the one who fashioned everything that we witnessed um, by his own hand. And so Psalm 19, I think, helps to put into perspective for us uh, what we should have been awed by, uh, but again, in the context of a creator. Um, uh, the psalmist uh, writes, this is uh, the Psalm of David for the director of music, and it begins, as some of you are already familiar, and again, this is the New International Version, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth, of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. 
They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. One of the things I appreciate about this psalm and to uh, come up with just one thing is a bit ridiculous. But one of the things that I appreciate about Psalm 19, from which I've just read, is that it begins by drawing our attention heavenward. We see. Um, what God has created, and and rightfully we are at in awe of what we observe. But then it draws our attention back to God. It's not the creation that should fascinate us as much as the Creator, and that's what Psalm 19 does. It draws our attention back to the one who uh, placed the sun in place and the moon in in place and established the cycles that we. Uh, that we witness and and enjoyed earlier today here in Oregon and other parts of the country uh, later in their afternoon. Psalm 19, a great reflection on a day like today. Uh, there's another astronomical event in about seven years, and the next one is uh, some distance from now. But I hope you enjoyed the eclipse, uh, but more importantly, the one uh, who set those um, those planets, the stars, the moon, the sun on their course, and um, uh, we'll draw closer and nearer to him. Again, tomorrow we're going to uh, talk with Ron Moore. He's the author of Worn Out by Obedience, uh, Recovering from Spiritual Fatigue. The book is published by Moody, and he'll be with us in the four o'clock hour. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing from afar, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.